This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, Vanuatu's Council of Chiefs take a first-of-its-kind tour of China, sparking some to wonder if a political aspect was at play. What came out of that visit is the idea that a Chinese film crew will come to Vanuatu and make a documentary, presumably as a record, but also for Chinese consumption. Meanwhile, COVID-19 and the flu attack evacuation centres in Guam following super typhoon Mawa. And we learn how Papua New Guinea women are teaching Indigenous Australians how to protect coral reefs on the Great Barrier Reef. All that and more today on the show. I'm Kyle Evans. So glad to have your company. But first, Palau's president says a visit to the damaged Fukushima nuclear power plant last week convinced him that Japan's treatment of nuclear wastewater is as safe as it possibly can be, ahead of its discharge into the Pacific Ocean. There is still a lot of opposition from some Pacific Island governments and civil society groups to Japan's plan to release the treated wastewater. President Sarangal Whips Jr. says he understands the opposition, but leaders need to base their views on facts. And it really comes down to a matter of trust. And the biggest thing that I, I looked at prior to my visit to Fukushima was the Japanese people were not taking this water and bringing it to the Pacific, uh, like to Palau and dumping it. It was right off their shores. And the people that would be impacted most are their own people. So they, w- they, they have to make sure that it's acceptable to their people. And if it's acceptable to their people and it's done in a safe manner... It's acceptable to all of us. It should be. But the opportunity for for us to go and, and actually uh, was my request that I wanted to go and see the site because I think it's important uh, for me and our, my leaders here in Palau from Congress and traditional leaders that went with me to also see firsthand and to understand really, you know, what we've been talking about, right? So the Alps water that they're trying to release is below the standard that's required, way below. And then by the time it's released, it's almost the level of what it is in the ocean naturally occurring. Uh, If you measure it two kilometers, their estimate is if it's two kilometers away from the discharge site, you won't even know that it was, it it had zero impact. So uh, the monitoring stations. And then on top of that, when we went there, they even showed us, uh, uh, there are tanks of fish in the Alps water and tanks of fish uh, in the regular seawater. And, you know, the testing process, the, they're going through there and testing the fish and, and see, seeing the impacts and all that. And, and they're taking incredible precautions and care in doing this. And, and the other thing that we need to understand is they're removing all the waste. The only thing that's going to be left is the tritinium, which is which naturally occurs, right? Uh, but cesium and all those other things will be removed. There's still quite a bit of opposition to the plan in the region amongst uh, civil society groups, some Pacific governments. There's been a lot of talk in recent years about the need for a united Pacific, uh, Pacific regionalism. Is Pacific regionalism being fractured by this issue, do you think? Well, you know, I, I think most importantly is we have to make base our decisions on data and facts when we make decisions. So as specific leaders, we should do our part and, and fact check and, and see for ourselves. And so that's why I went to Fukushima. So I've done my 
due diligence and gone and seen and observed and see what's going on. So I understand the, the opposition, but if you go to Korea, they're releasing water that has higher levels than that. And if you go to to uh, China, it's like seven times or 10 times higher. So, I mean, let's, let's use the same standard and apply it to everyone. Do you think, do you feel water sentiment is shifting? Well, I, I, I hope so. I mean, I, I think uh, the, the Japanese have been as transparent as they can. They've opened up the plant for us to visit. They, you know, the prime minister has sent envoys out. He's personally committed. The former prime minister has shown their commitment. And, and when you go there and you see the amount of effort and care that they're taking, you see the commitment. So uh, we're, we're hoping that, you know, the rest of the Pacific Island leaders see that. On to another issue, you made a call for an increased uh, U.S. military presence in Palau because of some recent Chinese incursions. Can you tell us uh, about those incursions, what was involved? Well, this is to be the third um, research vessel from China that's been traversing our waters and doing activities that sure looks like surveying to us or, or, or putting probes in the water and doing things. We, uh, we had aerial photos. Our ships did not board or go onto the ship, but they're going at slow speeds. And interestingly enough, over up on top of our fiber optic cable, which raises questions on what is their intention? Why are they here? Why are they covering these certain routes? They definitely did not tell us anything. They just, they're here. So they're definitely not friendly visits. Uh, and if they were, were, did want to do survey work, why aren't they sharing the data of whatever they collected with us? And as you know, under the compact with the United States, they're responsible for our security. And so that's why, you know, I think it's time that the United States steps up and maybe we all go out and visit these ships and see exactly wh why you're here and what you're doing. A Chinese foreign ministry spokesman was reported as saying that uh, the vessels were just taking uh, taking shelter in your waters and had not conducted any surveys. What's your response to that? That seems to be the routine excuse. So why are you putting stuff in the water then? Why are you putting probes in the water? I mean, uh, okay, uh, or just, you know, come on down to the harbor and uh, let's anchor and wait until the storm passes. But uh, obviously that's not what we were doing. We were right on top of the fiber optic label, traversing it. I mean, so. What kind of uh, increased U.S. military presence would you like to see? Well, I think they need to come out. And then, uh, you know, if, if a vessel's here, we should go by and say hi. And uh, what are you doing? Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, we called for the Coast Guard to come down. Unfortunately, the typhoon did hit Guam, so they were not in the position that they could react. But uh Definitely in the future, we, we need a quicker reaction. Yeah. Palau's President Sarangal Whips Jr. speaking there to reporter Liam Fox. Pacific Beat. Well, earlier this month, the Malvaltu Maori, or Vanuatu's National Council of Chiefs, took part in a first-of-its-kind tour across China. They spent nine days visiting various locations, including China's tea and film production capitals. The council said it may result in future meetings, and a keen China observer says there would have also been a political aspect to the tour. Jan Kahoot has the story. It was the first long-distance plane ride for some of Vanuatu's chiefs, who before this had never been further afield than New Caledonia. The main purpose of the visit was to have the five chiefs over to a tea expo in the city of Hangzhou, China's tea capital. 
President of the Council of Chiefs, Willy Plazur, said it was a way to see the similarities between the cultures. Because Vanuatu uh, also have uh, the, the, the culture, like uh, in, in China, and they want us to, to see and experience, to exchange the, the cultural uh, things that happening in China and Vanuatu. Associate Professor at the Department of Pacific Affairs at RNU, Graham Smith, agrees the guided tour to the city is a way to bring the two cultures closer together and draw similarities between the two. You know, if you were to point to a city in China that the Chinese leadership is most proud of, it would probably be Hangzhou these days. So, so that's, I think, why they picked that place. And the tea carver link is, you know, like that So very traditional united front thing to do is, is to build emotional links and the tea carver construct is, is kind of around that. He says there is also a political aspect to the trip on the Chinese side as Vanuatu's other international partners have never recognised the council as an important institution. Without saying it, they're saying, well, how come they haven't been fated in New Zealand or how come they haven't been fated in Australia? Um, or France, or all these other powers that you know have been in the region. Like, why aren't you treating these guys seriously? Why aren't you showing them the respect that they do? The government of China funded the trip and also brought the council to the city of Hangzhen, which is known as the country's film capital, for the production of television dramas showing and depicting ancient Chinese history and way of life. The idea being that you have these ceremonies and we have these ceremonies too and we have this culture that we're protecting and we can help you protect your culture. Hence the visit to uh, Hangdian and what came out of that visit, it seems, is the idea that a Chinese film crew will come to Vanuatu and make a documentary, presumably, you know, as a record but also for Chinese consumption about traditional Vanuatu culture and kind of promote that back in China. Professor Smith read the official statement of the trip provided by the Chinese embassy in Vanuatu and says the visit to Hengjian foreshadows a visit to Vanuatu by a Chinese film crew. And maybe if, uh, if, it, uh, if we have the opportunity again, but um, as, as for the chips, we we, we experience the, the culture and uh, how they, they, they value the, the, the tea. And we will uh, do the same thing with the kava to promote the kava plants here and make uh, similar like a tea in China. Willie Plasua, president of the Council of Chiefs, ending that report from Jan Kahoot. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. The French ambassador to the Indo-Pacific says his country wants to act as a stabilising force in the region to help island nations meet global challenges like climate change and the rise of China. Mark Avensor was in Canberra last week as part of the effort to rebuild trust between France and Australia after relations soured in 2021 when Australia tore up a $90 billion contract to purchase French submarines. On the issue of China, he says the policy of France and the European Union is to engage with the rising power in in concert with others and avoid a confrontational approach. Here he is talking to the ABC's foreign affairs reporter, Stephen Dredzic. 
we are not naive. Uh, we measure uh, very clearly, I mean, uh, challenges and, and risk uh, sometimes of this uh, uh, growing assertiveness. At the same time, we are aware uh, that uh, it's, um, uh, it remains uh, critical uh, to uh, engage uh, with uh, China uh, on, um, and, and to pursue a dialogue on the, some key issues. Uh, that could be, of course, uh, on how to address together, I mean, global challenges uh, such as uh, climate or uh, fight against infectious disease. Uh, you know that, uh, for instance, China is the, the largest emitter of uh, green gas house, um, greenhouse gas. Um, and, um, and also, I mean, to uh, uh, engage uh, China as a permanent member of the Security Council on the, uh, some regional uh, situation uh, that could be uh, uh, Iran, that could be uh, the Korean uh, Peninsula. Uh, so we need, I mean, to uh, pursue uh, this uh, dialogue with uh, China uh, so that China can uh, live up, I mean, to its uh, role and responsibilities. Uh, 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 at the same time, you're right. I mean, we are also witnessing, I mean, a, a growing uh, uh, footprint uh, of uh, China in the, the Pacific, uh, including in the, on the security matters. Uh, and uh, we followed very closely, I mean, the signing of uh, China-Solomon Islands security agreement uh, last April. Uh, we think uh, that... Uh, uh, that has uh, triggered, I mean, uh, some uh, significant reactions, and you mentioned, I mean, uh, some uh, of them. Uh, our approach uh, is uh, also to um, avoid a confrontational approach uh, towards uh, China and uh, at the same time to provide an alternative offer uh, to uh, engage uh, uh, partners uh, so that um they um, they uh, find some advantage i mean in this diversification of a partnership uh, which will also contribute to provide them with greater leverage and therefore uh, less dependencies uh, and uh, that's something that we try I mean, to um, uh, do also uh, in uh, close coordination uh, with uh, some uh, uh, key partners, uh, such as uh, Australia. So it was uh, very important for me, I mean, to engage uh, in uh, in-depth uh, discussion with uh, uh, colleagues and counterparts here in, in Canberra uh, so that we can share assessment and uh, see how we could, uh, could uh, calibrate in the most uh, efficient way uh, our response also to the, the challenges that you mentioned. What is uh, important to us, it's two things. I mean, uh, first, uh, to uh, do this uh, as a member of the Pacific family, uh, and so not, uh, um, I mean, uh, uh, exporting uh, from outside already uh, made solutions uh, to uh, the, the challenges um, that uh, um, Pacific Islands uh, face, uh, and also uh, to uh, ensure um, uh, ownership uh, by our partners um, on this 
specific uh, initiatives and projects uh, that uh, we can uh, develop together uh, because this is the prerequisite for uh, efficiency. Uh, and, and so we, we think that it's very important for us to not only uh, listen very uh, carefully uh, to uh, their um, their assessment, their understanding about the, the challenges and the issues uh, at stake, uh, to factor in uh, their um, their um, needs and perception, uh, and to do this also uh, in. Uh, very uh, close coordination uh, with uh, the principles laid out in the uh, uh, strategy 2050 for the Blue Continent uh, issued by the, the, the PIF, I mean the Pacific Islands Forum. Uh, I had the opportunity, I mean, uh, when I was in uh, Fiji, I mean, to meet uh, with uh, the PIF um, uh, members uh, and uh, it was very important to uh, see how we could uh, coordinate uh, further. You know France uh, is a, a dialogue partner of the PIF, uh, our territories, um, uh, New Caledonia and French Polynesia are full-fledged member uh, and so we, we try uh, also I mean, to um, fully take into account uh, the uh, the approach uh, that has been uh, laid out in the in, in the um, 2050 uh, strategy. Mark Abensaw, the French ambassador to the Indo-Pacific, speaking to Stephen Jejets. Hold the front page. Now it's time to find out what's making headlines around the region. And to do that, I'm joined by producer Talia Olatia, who has swapped places with me this week. Talia, welcome. Good morning, Kyle. Yes, where it's just a bit of musical chairs in the <laughs> the Pacific Beat Studios, but it's good. <laughs> Seems to be. We'll have some stability coming soon for yes. all the uh, for all the viewers listen, uh, uh, listeners listening out there. But first, let's start in uh, in PNG, uh, where the police commissioner has warned kidnappers and their associates: you can run, but you cannot hide. That sounds ominous. It does indeed. And it was in a statement, David Manning delivered that warning to the people involved in the recent kidnapping involving multiple schoolgirls who were reportedly kidnapped, raped and held hostage in Walagu near Mount Bosavai in the Southern Highlands province. The police commissioner said that those involved are being identified and that authorities wouldn't stop until everyone involved is brought to justice and it's only a matter of time before they are caught. Mr Manning says investigations into the perpetrators have actually been ongoing since the first kidnapping of the Australian academic Professor Bryce Barker and his PNG counterpart back in February. Now, interestingly, Mr Manning in this statement says that they've established communication links between these criminals and various prominent district, provincial and national leaders. And Mr Manning says that those um, elected reps will be brought in for questioning to find out, one, um, more about how they were in communication and also why they were in communication. Um, Mr Manning said that the people involved were domestic terrorists and that 
that this is a new and emerging crime and that it is a threat to national security and safety, you know, taking people hostage and demanding ransoms mm. and that it must be stopped from setting at all um, at all costs. Um, he also went on to say that personnel and equipment from the PNG Defence Force have also been deployed as part of the joint operation and working with the police. Mr Manning says that they will remain in the area until that threat has been eliminated. So obviously throwing everything that they can to stop this. Yeah, really concerning stuff. But it, yeah, look, it is it is good that they're making inroads uh, with that investigation. Uh, let's move on. Uh, we're in Samoa, where the government has issued a warning about businesses operating in Hong Kong. What's this about? Yeah, so these business operations include a so-called Samoa Stock Exchange, a Samoa Digital Asset Exchange, and an Oceania Special Economic Zone, all of which that the government says that they have not in- endorsed or approved. Now, it comes after a photo of the finance minister, Mulipola Anarosa, with Hong Kong officials at the establishment ceremony was widely circulated on social media and had a lot of people going, what's this about? Now, the statement from the Prime Minister's office says it has not given any endorsement or approval of any such initiatives. It says it received applications regarding those initiatives, but they were still being reviewed and appraised by the relevant authorities. It says that while the government welcomed new investment that would improve or benefit the economy of Samoa and its people, it must ensure that initiatives are safe, sound and feasible. The statement went on to say that it was taking a cautious approach concerning proposals related to digital assets, also known as cryptocurrency or virtual assets, um, because of the global experiences that, you know, these exchanges can sometimes lead to scams and money laundering as well. The government said it will be in a position to make an informed decision once that feasibility study is completed and thoroughly vetted. Until then, the government will not endorse or give give any licences for it. So it's kind of interesting that the finance minister was at an establishment um, ceremony, but yes, not authorised it seems. It will be very interesting to see how that uh, study plays out. And finally today, Fiji Rugby Union has confirmed it underpaid its women's its women rugby players. Yeah, that's right. And this is a follow to the story Richard Ewart brought you on Friday. The FIU Trustees Board conceded that they did in fact underpay their women's team for last year's World Cup and this year's Oceania Rugby Women's Championships. The interim, cha- the interim chairman, rather, Peter Maisie, actually went on to apologise to Fijiana players and acknowledged the acknowledge the women for their, quote, strength and honesty in highlighting these player welfare concerns. Now, of course, people following this story will know that the apology came after the captain, Sereima Lewaniglia, took to Twitter asking, do we have to win every time to be treated right? What does it take for our voices to be heard? Pay us what is due to us. And of course, that post going viral online. Now, in reaction to the book, that post, the Board of Trustees released a statement on Thursday saying that all payments had been made and that it was a misunderstanding. But then they released another statement saying that there had in fact been an error and that investigations found that the complaints were justified. The interim chairman, Mr Maisie, assures that the situation will be rectified um, with a meeting of the trustees due to be called early this week to review and correct the situation. Again, Mr Maisie said he was sorry that the players were forced to use social media to ach- 
achieve what was rightly due to them. But hopefully this might make things easier moving forward because it looks like there will be a lot of eyes on payments for the women's rugby players. Yeah, and rightly so. It has good they've come out and conceded uh, that mistake, but it's a shame that it had to come to a a social media Mm. post for that to happen. Talia, thank you very much for joining us this morning. No worries. Thanks, Kyle. That was Talia Rolatia bringing us the latest headlines from around the region. Nijam Footy. Hosted by me, Sam Wax. And me, Tenero Aruna. Each week, we'll bring you Pacific Islander stories from on and off the rugby league and rugby union field. We'll have plenty of special guests, tales from the past, tackle the big topics of today, and look forward to the next-gen Nijam Footy stars. Nijam Footy. Nijam Footy. Monday afternoons at 2 o'clock, PNG time. On ABC Radio Australia. To Guam now, where some people in evacuation centres are dealing with the COVID, with the with COVID and the flu after a super typhoon caused havoc in the area three weeks ago. Some areas are still without power and phones, and access to fresh water is also an issue. Joining me now is Nick Delgado, a journalist with KUAM News. Good morning. Good morning to you. Well, I guess just firstly, Nick, uh, how many people are still in evacuation centres? And can you tell us a little bit about these, uh, these COVID and flu cases, which, is, which sounds pretty concerning as well? Right. And you have to consider that all of this has kind of been unfolding just a year after we thought we were in the clear from this COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, since a lot of the sicknesses and the virus in our area has kind of subsided. But now we're talking about more than 200 people who had to evacuate their homes because of the storm that hit us nearly a month ago. Uh, still remain in these shelters and in confined spaces. This one particularly that we're talking about is located in the central part of the island near the tourism district, a village called Tamuning, where uh, more than or exactly a handful of people on Friday, there was confirmation from the department, the local health department, that they had contracted COVID-19. Um, just this morning, right before coming on the air with you, I was able to confirm with one of the respond- responding physicians to the shelters that there were a confirmed four influenza cases as well at that same shelter. And so you can only imagine just the scramble now, then the rush that the government is in right now to try and find an alternative site so that these people are uh, spaced out and have better living conditions while they wait out what's going to happen next in the recovery. Yeah, four years on COVID-19, it is the gift that keeps on giving at the worst possible time, it uh, it always seems. Um, just clarifying, so uh, who who is a Currently, the people in evacuation centres, are these people who don't currently have homes because of the typhoon? It was, it's correct, but both either someone who did not have a place, uh, a roof over their head, or those who were, lived in what's called substandard homes, roof and tin type structures, which many we saw have been flattened mm. following this typhoon. And so it was, it was smart of them to go and seek shelter immediately. Yeah, absolutely. Are, are, mo- are most people on the island out of evacuation centres now and, and set back up? For the most part, because there are certain programs that have been in place, if they did lose their roofs to their Woodenton homes, there are programs now in place to help them re- repair that. Uh, FEMA, a lot of the federal officials in the Red Cross remain uh, going around the island to try and help people get back to their homes while the power, like you said earlier, still slowly being restored, at least 25% of the island still in the dark. Now, I understand there's been reports as well that uh, ventilation and conditions within those centres are are inadequate uh, as well. Is that true? 
Right. And, and yes, it is an issue because uh, we're talking about conditions following a storm. It's usually a lot more muggy. The, the heat is, is rampant, especially now that we're into the summer months. Um, so, yes, the, the ventilation there is a problem. And the governor even is aware of this issue and trying to this week try and find a solution is what we're being told uh, to where to place these shelteries moving forward. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Kyle Evans, and I'm chatting with journalist Nick Delgado from KUAM News. We're discussing the aftermath of Typhoon Mawa in Guam, where COVID and the flu has broken out in evacuation centres. Just still on those evacuation centres, Nick, what are officials doing about it at the moment? Are people able to receive medical treatment or at least uh, at least be separated from others within, within those um, centres? So what they've been able to do is those with positive cases of influenza, I'm being told from the doctors that have been responding again, that they're bringing them to the local hospital's emergency room as sick patients to be treated there. The Red Cross is standing by and public health, uh, as well as some of the local private pract- uh, doctors are responding to these shelters to just check on patients on an as-needed basis. Well, if there's one thing we know post-COVID, that's exactly how uh, how viruses are spread. Um, just on those healthcare services, are they, are they equipped to be able to, to be able to deal with this following that following the the typhoon? Because I imagine they were probably hit pretty hard as well. At this point, it seems that uh, despite some of the damage that our hospital had taken on from the storm, it seems that there have been no reports of uh, that they're incapable or don't have the proper equipment, especially now that our ports is back to operation, full operation. Uh, that's that's good to hear. I just want to uh, talk about water and power quickly. I know you mentioned it briefly earlier. Uh, the last reports I read, uh, which was about a week old now, I admit, that I think it was about 50% of the island was still uh, without power. Is, is that still the case or is, is more power come back online? More power has come back, thankfully, um, about 70, just over 75 percent of the island has now been restored. Uh, unfortunately, as this process is ongoing, the power, the local power authority tells us that we are going to continue to expect rolling blackouts. And we have experienced that throughout the, the past couple of days where the power will be off for at least up to two hours at a time. Yeah, and what about you personally? Is, uh, has power been OK at your house? It, it's pretty unstable or fragile, as officials say, and so um, we just kind of wait it out and live it out as best we can until everything is somewhat back to normal. One of the other things I read last week as well is that there was still something like 7,000 uh, people who, who were unemployed uh, virtually or unable to work as a result um, of the typhoon. What, what's the, the general mood uh, on the island like at the moment? Is it, is it a, a bit bleak still or is there optimism that, that things are slowly getting better? I think that that all depends on who you ask. Um, look, speaking with the people in the really hard hit areas in the northern part of the island, they still don't feel like there's there is hope uh, in sight. They they're still trying to find out um, how they're going to get their next meal, let alone where they're going to live next after mm-hmm. being through such a, a disaster. I know that uh, the, the governor in place at the moment, he was uh, pretty quick to get on the, the front foot to ensure those government services were going to be in place. But in your opinion, were, uh, have they been fast enough? In my opinion, and I'm also just giving you based off my experience, at the time when we had a disaster like this more than 20 years ago, I was a teen. And uh, considering the, the, the 
decade that we're in, the advanced um, infrastructure that we have this year and, and ahead of this storm, I think they're moving as quick as they can, but they could move much faster. Well, that is good to know. And uh, look, if anyone uh, within the government is, is, is listening, I hope they've heeded that advice and, and if they can, are able to get a move on. Uh, Nick, that's all we've got time for this morning, but thank you uh, very much for joining us and, uh, and good luck uh, as the island continues to, to recover from that, uh, that horrible typhoon. We appreciate that. Thank you, guys. That was Nick Delgado, a journalist with KUAM News, speaking with me there. Well, from the seas of Melanesia to the reefs of far north Queensland, a successful reef guardianship program rolled out in Papua New Guinea is now testing the waters on the Great Barrier Reef. As part of the program, Papua New Guinean women are helping Indigenous Australians and Torres Strait Islanders to learn how to monitor and protect coral reefs in the face of increasing threats. Baz Ruddick reports. (laughs) The main snorkelling area is just right along this edge here and it's um, different-looking coral to what we've seen so far. The wind has died down on waters off Orpheus Island in North Queensland. Conditions are perfect for a dive. It's a really cool shell. It's like bright orange Um, and lots of fish today. More than a dozen women with cameras and survey tools are snorkelling on shallow reefs. I saw a hidden stingray, some really good new acro that I didn't really know was a thing. It's part of a weeks-long training program led by the Coral Sea Foundation, called the Sea Women of the Great Barrier Reef. The trainers are from PNG, where a similar program is already underway to protect coastal ecosystems. So we train them with survey techniques and camera techniques so that they can get geotech images of their reef so that we can be able to identify what's like underneath in their you know, coral reefs. That's Naomi Longa. She is a director of the Sea Women of Melanesia, the original version of the program which won the United Nations Champion of the Earth Award in 2021. She's passionate about saving reefs. It is the, one of the main um, natural resources that people depend on for food, for income, for tourism activity. They, they already have connections with those coral reefs and also if we protect those um, coral reefs and marine environment, then it's going to provide food for us and for our future generation. In PNG, the organisation has set up marine reserves and has permanent staff on the ground in three different provinces. They are now using their learning on the Great Barrier Reef, home to more than 500 types of coral and 1,600 species of fish. PNG women can come down here and train women here, help show them how it's done in PNG, but whatever skills that we have learned through this program, they can take it back to their own sea country and help their people. The women learn how to use underwater cameras which tag location by GPS. They learn about the different types of coral and species of fish and what signs of reef distress look like. You see a coarse thing, fish, you just like click this one and it starts rolling. Kerri-Anne Molai works in PNG with the women of Melanesia. She's now training women on the Great Barrier Reef. With Sea Women of Melanesia, I, I am, I'm the field operations person where I train all the other women on doing um, the camera techniques, the GPS and the, the skills to, to do surveying and stuff. 
And while she grew up around the water, she says traditionally Papua New Guinean women don't dive and science and research jobs are usually held by men. The program can therefore be empowering. In my country, it's, it's a bit tough. It's, uh, you, you get to see men doing most of the marine work and females are considered not to do that. They have other roles, but it's about time we bring change into the society. And that focus on a common goal binds the women together. Everyone is so comfortable and we, we help each other to identify um, different species of corals and fish species out on the, on the reef. I hope to see all of us build confidence in um, sharing the knowledge and the training skills we uh, are getting it here right now back to our communities where we all are from. Yeah. While many of the women live by the reef and close to their traditional sea country, for most, the underwater world is a brand new experience. (laughs) There's even pool noodles to offer a bit of stability for those just finding their sea legs. Frances Joyce is a ranger with the Mamu Aboriginal Corporation. And when I seen it, I was just like, oh, I've got to do it because I've always had a passion for sea country just as much as land. In her day job, she works protecting cultural sites and managing land in the wet tropics. It's the first time she's seen so much of the reef. But just having that um, Indigenous mob involved, and especially women, it's really important so I can share the knowledge and pass it on um, to our younger generations and and bring awareness and show them that, you know, you don't have to go to uni and stuff like that to be able to do this kind of work, that you can just give it a go. Mildred Kello is from PNG and is doing her PhD in marine science. I think it gives them that idea that, like, there's life underwater. Like, from the surface, we just see it as just water covering part of the land, but we don't get to see what's underneath until, like, you get your first snorkel. And when you dive down, you're like, oh, there's corals. And then, like, it just intrigues you to try to understand, like, how they live underwater. Like, and that community, that it's very diverse. Beyond the personal achievements for the women, the program is also doing important conservation work. Climate change is causing oceans to warm, leading to coral bleaching that can rapidly kill off reefs. By mapping and surveying their waters... The women can ensure they catch these bleaching events before they take hold. Mildred has seen the impacts of climate change up close, with her home village forced to relocate due to coastal erosion caused by rising seas. When we'd walk, like, usually we always had, like, a straight path along the coast, especially when we go from market or we go to church, or we just go to, like, visit relatives. We always, like, follow the uh, the sandy beaches. But now with like high tide, especially with that kin tides coming in or just high tides in general, like we have to go through the bushes. Yeah. And most villages that I've noticed when I was younger, they are no longer there. Yeah. They've all like moved further in. The Sea Women program is one way women like Mildred can feel empowered in the face of climate change. 
But Dr Andy Lewis, founder of the Coral Sea Foundation, which runs the program, says more study still needs to be done on how reefs can recover after bleaching events. There's an increasing threat from climate change. Um, there's still threats from changes in water quality and different sorts of pollution coming into the ocean. And in terms of the bigger picture, uh, it's very much tied to our own survival. I mean, reefs are sort of the canary in the coal mine for climate change. I mean, if we lose coral reefs, it makes our own civilization very tenuous. So if we look after reefs properly, it's a, it's a good yardstick that we're actually looking after the biodiversity of the planet properly. Interest in the program is growing as more women are drawn to marine science and conservation on their own sea country. The demand for this program was really fantastic. We had over 70 applications. Um, probably over 20 of those were from Australian First Nations women and the rest were from women in Melanesia. Dr Lewis hopes more traditional owners and Indigenous women will take the lead around the Pacific. I would love to see the program extended up and down the coastline uh, with the women that are coming through this program eventually becoming leaders in the program, training other women and having the whole thing adequately funded so that the women can have their own boats, they can have their own dive gear, they can have their own cameras and they can be out regularly monitoring and looking after their sea country as often as they want to be out there doing it. Dr. Andy Lewis, founder of the Coral Sea Foundation, ending that report by Baz Ruddick. Pacific Beat. If you go on TikTok, you'll see lots of videos of the Polynesian mullet, a Pacific take on the iconic hairstyle that is business in the front and a party in the back. But did you know that the mullet dates further back than the 80s? In fact, we're throwing it all the way back to ancient Rome and upper, upper Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia that it, this is the history of the mullet. What do you think of the mullet on a man? I like it. It's the, it's the head of the god. <laughs> oh, they laugh, but hairdresser Makesh is onto something. If you thought the mullet's story started with 70s rockers like the Runaways or 80s sports stars like Warwick Kappa, if your history of the mullet doesn't have references to classic Greek literature or Upper Mesopotamia... You need this history of the mullet. And it, was, it was super short on top, I should say. It's like shaved, isn't it? Business. Business, yeah. As Dr Emily Brayshaw, Honorary Research Fellow at the School of Design at the University of Technology Sydney says, the mullet goes back a lot further than that. We're talking prehistoric peoples would likely have discovered practical benefits of cutting the fringe to keep it out of their eyes mm. with a bit of extra growth at the back to keep their necks warm and protect them from the rain. So hundreds of thousands of years it's been um, business at the front and party at the back, I'd say. And we're only just getting started. How about mullet history, the warrior edition? Three and a half thousand years ago, we've got Hittite warriors and Assyrians and Egyptians, ancient Egyptians sporting them. This Hittite empire spread across, they sort of started around in modern Turkey, but, um, you know, across Asia Minor into northern Levant and upper Mesopotamia, big, big mullet times then. And then we've even got um, the ancient Greek poet Homer, who um, in the Iliad um, talks about a Greek tribe of warring spearmen called the Abantes, who were allies of the Greeks during the Trojan Wars. And Homer describes them as wearing their forelocks cropped, hair grown long at the back. So, you know, mullet that, in the Iliad. That, the mullet in the Iliad. You know, we've got uh, a lot of Greek statues, again, found in Western museums. 
Um, a lot of these artefacts date to 6th century before Christ, so uh, 2,600 years ago. You'll spot a mullet there. Did you ever tie it up at the back? Nah, no way, nah. No use having a mullet if you're going to tie it up. And where were the ancient Romans rocking their mullets? Mullets at the circuits. So, um... So they're kind of like a hairstyle of choice for youthful, wealthy, ancient Romans who love to watch the chariot races. And the haircuts, they actually called the style the Hun Cut after the Huns who were nomadic warriors from Central Asia, the Caucasians and Eastern Europe. And the Huns kind of terrorised much of Europe and the Roman Empire in the 4th and 5th centuries AD, but they're incredibly impressive horsemen and known for their military achievements. And so, you know, seeing the Hun cut at the chariot races was sort of a little bit edgy, a little bit daring, Seeing it stream um, you know. out behind them as they raced one another? Well, they just are what they are. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you like yours? Because working party at the back. Yeah. <laughs> no, the Western world doesn't really have a monopoly on the mullet. Mm-hmm. In Japan, for example, during the Edo period, which is about 1603 to 1867, um, there was a version of the mullet called the Chonmage. And that's like the top-knot haircut worn by men and generally samurai shaved at the top, but down the back it's grown very, very long and it was oiled and waxed and being tied into a small tail folded onto the top of the head in a top knot. So that's kind of like riffing on the mullet, Mm. if you will. And once he got home at night and took that top knot out and shook his waxed and oiled mane, it would have been mullet central. How about China? Any mullet history? Yeah, a little bit. The uh, the hairdo called the Q, uh, worn by the Jurchen and Manchu people of Manchuria in the Qing dynasty of China. Again, roughly the same period, 1636 to 1912, was required to wear the Q. Again, the front portion of the head shaved and then the hair at the back grown really long and plaited. Not everybody is a mullet fan, though. We can also see that for thousands of years, it's sort of been the haircut of rebels, if you will. Was anyone asking about how the mullet affects your immortal soul? Is the Bible okay with mullets? No, no. St Paul in the Corinthians um, 11.14 declares that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him. So, you know, the Bible's not down with a mullet. Interestingly, in the medieval era, we've got a medieval English monk and historian called Odoric Vitalis, who was often cranky and he had like issues and views on fashion and he grumbled that many of the elite Norman noblemen used to shave the front part of their head like thieves and let their hair grow very long in the back like harlots. Like harlots! <laughs> Business at the front, harlot at the back is another level again. And don't let anyone tell you a mullet can't pay your bills. US President Benjamin Franklin wore what we call a scullet, <laughs> which is when the dude's gone bald on the top and long at the back. And that was in the late 18th century. And uh, his style's immortalised on the US $100 bill. Wow. <laughs> See, I was confusing it with a frolet where you've got the, the party at the front and it's business on the back. Ah, the reverse mullet. Right, that's the one. You go in there to get one cut off and they uh, they just keep it on. It just must be stuck on there or something. I'd, 
just stuck in their brain. They can't cut it off. It's against their tradition, I suppose. Will there ever be a time where there are no mullets? I think the mullet's going to be around for another three and a half thousand years. I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. Let's hope not. Helen Shield with that history of the long locks. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Recapping our top story this morning, Palau's president, Sarangal Whips Jr., says a visit to the Fukushima plant has convinced him Japan's plans to dump treated nuclear wastewater into the Pacific is safe. The people that would be impacted most are their own people. And if it's acceptable to their people and it's done in a safe manner, it's acceptable to all of us. It should be. I'll be back at the same time tomorrow. That's 6 a.m. PNG time. You can also hear us again this afternoon at 3 p.m. PNG time. Stay tuned on ABC Radio Australia because the news is next. Have a fantastic morning.